I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, in keeping with tradition, let's do a review and see how we got to where we are today. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, uh, which you can tell probably by the title, Romans. It's pretty, pretty easy. And uh, this is a church that, again, Paul probably has never been to. He, he probably knows maybe a few people, if he knows anybody at all. And he begins by making it clear that he wants to make sure these people understand the gospel. So he makes it his business to give them the gospel. And he goes and he wants to make sure that they the Jesus that they believe in is the Jesus of the Bible and it is not some false concoction presented to them by somebody else. It was actually very popular um, or very common rather at this time for false Jesuses to be preached just as it is today. In fact, we see in John's letters him writing against heresies that were abounding at the time, particularly the heresy that Jesus wasn't actually human, but only appeared to be human. And so Paul may be fearful of a similar type of heresy or something, or a, a similar false Jesus being preached among this crowd. So he wants to be sure that they understand who Jesus truly is is. And so he makes it plain, not just who Jesus truly is, but also who these church members truly are. And he does that by addressing two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, those who come from ethnic Israel and those who come from outside of ethnic Israel. And we have seen up to this point um, Paul seems to be pretty hard on ethnic Israel. He seems to be pretty hard on the Jews, talking about their abandoning God, God's rejection even 
of them. And their rejection seeming so overwhelmingly total, final. But as we learned last week, Israel's rejection of the gospel and therefore God's rejection of Israel is not total. We learn today that it is not final. So beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? He's talking about the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Have they stumbled to the point to where they cannot recover? And how does he answer that? Well, he uses the same emphatic negative response that he's used frequently throughout the letter. My translation says, certainly not. Yours might say, God forbid, or might say, may it never be. The idea is that that idea, that question is silly on the face of it. Of course, Israel hasn't stumbled to the point of total and final rejection beyond recovery or repair. He says, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Let that sink in, friends. It is unlikely, I don't know your family history, but it is unlikely there are any ethnic Israelites in here. And even their rejection of the gospel from Paul's time to now is the very catalyst which drives the gospel from Israel out into the nations. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying their rejection of Jesus and his saving work is what carried the gospel from Israel to outside of Israel. But it doesn't even just it doesn't even stop there. It goes further. That not only does their rejection of the gospel take the gospel to the nations, but the nations reception of the gospel results in the jealousy and then the ultimate salvation of Israel. Behold the mind and the method of God that even our sinful responses are not outside of his sovereignty. Even the very rejection of the gospel by the people through whom the gospel came isn't outside the sovereignty of God and is used by God not just for the salvation of those called by his name, Israel, those who struggle with God, but for the salvation of the nations. And friends, need I remind you that without that, we wouldn't be here today. Without that, we would be happily and stupidly on the road to destruction. So has Israel stumbled to the point beyond recovery? No. No. Why? Because God's name is still in a very real way attached to them by virtue of their own name. So he's not done. He hasn't finished with Israel. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Paul continues this line of thinking, this line of reasoning. When he says, if Israel's rejection 
And this cuts both ways. Yes, Israel's rejection of the gospel, but also God's rejection of Israel, ethnic Israel, from receiving the gospel. If their fall, if their failure results in such wonderful and bountiful riches for the world, for the Gentile nations, for the non-Jewish people brought into the covenant by grace. How much more will their acceptance, their restoration and inclusion into the new covenant of grace bring about that much more riches for the people of God and for his creation? My friends, brothers and sisters, It is by grace we are saved. Let every word that has been read so far remind you that it is grace that saves us. It is not your family lineage. It is not your Christian heritage even. It is not however many churches your dad pastored. It's not however many hymns your mom used to sing you. It's by grace you have been saved. And that grace comes by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that grace is sufficient not just to save, but to save even when it looks like salvation is not only improbable, but impossible. Salvation by grace is always possible. Honey, could you bring me my water, please? (laughs) Thank you. I call her honey because we're married. It's okay. (laughs) Verse 13, Paul continues, For I speak to you, Gentiles. Now he has turned, and he is now specifically addressing the Gentiles and the congregation of the church in Rome. He has been talking quite clearly and explicitly, to and about the Jewish people. He says, now I'm talking to you Gentiles. Now I'm talking to those who don't come from a people and a history and a background and a family that has benefited from the Old Testament scriptures. And as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So Paul says, in line with this this reasoning of God, that the reception of the gospel among the Gentiles, provoking jealousy among the Jews, thereby bringing them to salvation in Christ, in line with that, Paul says, Though I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I haven't forgotten my people. But I magnify, I glory in, I am proud of the ministry God has given me. And I hope that by that, some of my own family, whom I love, might be provoked to jealousy and be saved. If you've been a Christian for longer than five minutes, you probably understand where Paul is coming from here. How many of us in this room today have family that you've been praying for? At best, because you don't know the state of their soul. And at worst, because you do. (laughs) So you glory in the ministry that God has given you. 
wherever that might be. In your church, in your work, among your friends, your neighbors, your acquaintances. So that maybe, maybe your family will see. Maybe God will provoke them to jealousy and then he will save them. This is what Paul is talking about, friends. This, this is the struggle Paul, an apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people, to people he didn't know from Adam. But that was his ministry. So he went about his ministry, but he never forgot his family. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? This is happiness, friends. Again, reiterating what he has said previously, that if the rejection of the Jews has led to such wonderful blessings, how much, how much more do we have to look forward to? when they finally receive salvation. And he says, I'll tell you, life from the dead. This has multiple meanings. Theologians like to go back and forth about what exactly is Paul talking about here. My general response tends to be, yes, he's talking about it all probably. And uh, the, the options really are, is he talking about the the individual bringing of life, spiritual life, to one who comes to faith in Christ. Of course he is. He's made that very clear throughout this, throughout this entire letter. Is he talking about a spiritual revival, embracing the nation of Israel, whereby their once great apostasy becomes overshadowed by their great reconciliation? That's Paul's hope. And I think we can scripturally say there may very well be a great turning to God among the Jewish people. Now, whether that is simply throughout the life of the church, the life and the ministry of the church in the church age that we're living in now, or whether that also comes about towards the end of the final days, heralding the events we read about in the book of Revelation? I don't know. Maybe. But I do know that this idea is true. That though there was, there was almost universal rejection of Christ among the Jewish people, Paul is hopeful for a reversal of that. And we do know that there are those of the household of Israel who have come to faith since then. And we can rejoice in that with Paul. And maybe, maybe some of you get to see that in your own families. I sure hope so. I sure hope that that many of us all of us get to see family members who once openly blatantly rejected Christ come to him in faith and salvation for if the first fruit is holy the lump is also holy and if the root is holy so are the branches now Paul starts talking metaphorically, and he begins with um, basically a bread analogy. The first fruits of the grain being set aside 
and offered to God uh, in order to not just sanctify what has been sacrificed, but also to sanctify the whole harvest. And then he talks about a tree. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And it's it's pretty clear in keeping with um, the direction Paul has been heading that who he's talking about as the first fruits would be the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those with whom God covenanted. And he's saying if, if the first fruits, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or if the root, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are holy, then the lump is holy. And this idea of holiness not necessarily being like God, but being set apart, being separated. And he goes on to expound upon that metaphor, the tree metaphor in particular. And that's going to be the main section um, that we'll, we'll be finishing up today, 17 through 24. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. So now Paul takes this tree metaphor, which is also found in the Old Testament, and he expounds upon it. He uses this to, to convey real and serious spiritual truths. Namely that there are branches of the household of Israel, true Israel, the people of God, who have been cut off. And in their place has been grafted Gentile branches. My friend, my brother, my sister, we are only in the family of God because in his mercy and grace and kindness, he went out into the wilderness, cut you off of that wild tree, and brought you back to his garden. That is the mercy of God. That is the grace of God. What Paul is illustrating here isn't cruelty. It isn't tyranny. On the contrary, this is unending and unimaginable grace and love. Because his love didn't stop at the people of Israel, ethnic Israel. It abounded to the world. So he went outside of the garden of Israel. And he brought you back and grafted you into the tree where you would grow and flourish and thrive by the sap of his grace. Paul says, do not boast against these branches. From an early, early time, the church was overwhelmingly Gentile. Outnumbering Jewish believers drastically. And there has been, and there was at that time, this idea that among Gentile believers that they were superior because they didn't come from a people who had rejected the Messiah. The very beginnings of what has come to be known as replacement theology. This idea that God is done with his with Israel and has turned his attention exclusively to the nations. But Paul says, almost against the branches. Do 
Because if you boast, you need to be reminded, you need to remember. You don't support the root. You're a branch. The root supports you. That were it not for the very people of Israel, you would have no gospel to believe. There would have been no Messiah to come into the world. And it's shameful to say that this attitude has persisted. It has cropped up again and again throughout the history of the church. This idea that a non-Jewish believer is superior to a Jewish believer. This idea was so persistent that a famous dictator once jumped on that bandwagon when he decreed the massacre of millions of Jews. Don't boast. Don't brag. Don't think too highly of yourself as a non-Jewish believer because that grace that comes from God came through the catalyst of Israel. Don't boast. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Now how conceited does that sound? It's like, Paul, you don't get it. God snapped off those branches to bring me in. What does Paul say to that? Well said. Or your translation might say, true enough. Or your translation might simply stop at true. Yes, God did break off branches to bring in the nations, to bring in Gentiles. But those branches were broken off. Why? Because of unbelief. Those branches were removed because of unbelief, because of rejection of the gospel, because of a failure to believe in the Messiah when the Messiah had come. And Paul made, made it clear very early on, before this section we're in today, he has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whom he hardens. And that's okay. Because the justice of God is still at work in the scenario of a hardened heart. And the mercy of God is at work in the scenario of a softened heart. So yes, branches were broken off. But branches were broken off because of unbelief. And Paul says, and you stand by faith. By the grace of faith. It's not because there's something about you that God likes oh so much. It's not because there's something about you that when God looked at it, he said, that's what I'm looking for. God looked at you. God looked at me in my sin, in my filth, in my yuck. And instead of a hard gaze resulting in justice he had compassion he had mercy and he brought me into the garden and grafted me into the tree of life do not be haughty don't be prideful don't get carried away but instead, fear. 
Your translation might say, stand in awe. And I'm okay with that. Don't get proud. Don't get boastful. Fear. Stand in awe at the grace of God. Just as when Jesus shows up on the scene after Peter and the boys had been out fishing and hadn't caught anything all night. And Jesus says, why don't you just cast the net out on the right side? And they brought in a haul so massive that it took an extra boat. What was Peter's response? He fell down at his feet and he worshiped. Let the grace of God in your life, which may I tell you, Christian, is much bigger and better than a net full of fish. Let that grace drive you to a point of awe and fear. Biblical fear is biblical awe. It is a wonder so deep, so magnificent, and so high that the knowledge that I cannot comprehend it drives it even further and higher and deeper into my life. So let the grace of God drive you to awe. Be re, re, re be, remember, there we go, let's go with that. Remember, remember the grace of God. Be reminded, there we go, that's what I was trying to say. Be reminded of the grace of God. And let that ever-present reminder bring you back to awe. If you and I have had too many conversations, you know that I love study Bibles. I'm a huge fan of study Bibles. In fact, to the point to where I'm convinced that when God inspired the thought for study Bibles, he was thinking about me. Because I like study Bibles. And one of the study Bibles that I was reading reminded me of new Christians. New Christians who, when, when they first come to Christ, who are so amazed at every turn of the Bible's page. Why? Because what do they see? They see grace and grace and grace, and they are awed and amazed, and they stand in wonder, and they glorify God, and somewhere along the way, we become accustomed to that. Somewhere along the way, we get so used to the idea of grace that God forbid we even come to the point to where we think we deserve it. We think that it's owed us. Paul is saying here, let the grace of God remind you of how unworthy you are a knowledge which you had when you first came to him. When he first brought you to him. Excuse me for a moment. Paul says, don't be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches... He may not spare you either. Now that, that's a deep truth. Because remember what he's talking about here. He's talking about the sin of presumption. Don't presume God's grace on you simply because you can trace your lineage back to Abraham. Don't presume on God's grace simply because you grew up with the Torah. 
Don't presume on God's grace simply because you walked an aisle and prayed a prayer at church camp. Don't presume on God's grace simply because you grew up in a Christian household. Don't presume. God's grace is something to be gloried in. It is something to glorify God in. It is not something to assume because I'm so used to it. For if he did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. If he did not spare those who belong to Israel for their sin of presumption, what makes you think he's going to spare you for your sin of presumption? And we need to remember not to push this metaphor too far. The Bible's not saying you can lose your salvation. Because we know those whom he loves, he keeps. The Bible is saying your true identity is being revealed. That's sin. You are revealing yourself to have never been grafted in to the olive tree. But instead you are showing that you have are out in the wild, far away from the presence of God. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. We have two things at work, seemingly in tension, God's goodness and God's severity. On those who fell, severity. On those who have proven themselves ungodly, God is severe. God is harsh. God gives justice. But toward you, Paul is saying, to the Gentile believers in the congregation, those who didn't grow up with the privileges of Old Testament Judaism, he's saying, but to you, goodness your translation might say the goodness or kindness of God. If you continue in his goodness. So we're showing what we're seeing here, what Paul is showing, yes, to the Roman congregation, but also to us today. He's showing whether God deals harshly with you, or whether God deals kindly with you is born out in whether you walk in his goodness or not. If you appear to receive goodness from God and you use that to lift yourself up, to elevate yourself over your brothers and sisters and to look down on them, you are showing that you are not continuing in the goodness of God and will therefore be treated severely. But to continue in his goodness, which again is only a gift of grace, to walk in the grace of God by his grace is to receive his goodness and his kindness, which continues to enable you to walk in his goodness and his grace. Otherwise, you also will be cut, cut off, re-emphasizing his point, the idea that you will be shown to have never been a child of God, but instead a vessel of wrath. And they also, talking about Israel, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, 
and were grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? In summation, if God had such wonderful, bountiful, marvelous, and magnificent grace on those who are not called by his name, isn't that evidence of the fact that he will have grace on those called by his name? who turn from unbelief to belief, who are turned from unbelief to belief. God isn't finished with ethnic Israel. There are still those in the household of Israel who need to be saved. There are still those in the household of Israel who go by the name of Israel who are called by his name, who are elected unto salvation and need to receive the gospel preached to them. Do not be haughty, but fear, and in fear obey your God and Father and Master and preach the gospel to every living creature, Jew and Gentile alike. I'll be honest, sometimes I feel like that's my one bell to ring. That it's the only one I have. Those were the last words of my master before he departed this earth. That was the last thing he said to his disciples. The last thing his disciples were to teach their converts. To obey. So I feel in a very real way every passage I've preached can come back to, be drawn back to, can at least have a dot connected to preaching the gospel. So go out from this place. Don't let your Christianity be merely a Sunday activity. But let your Christianity be your lifestyle. And by the grace of God, go leave these four walls and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost, dying world that needs you to preach it. Proclaim the gospel. Teach the Love your neighbor by doing so. Because both Israelite and Gentile need you to preach the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you again, God, so in awe of who you are, God, what you do, the very words you have blessed us with reading and hearing and speaking. God, we know that there are those in Israel who need to be brought out of this false Israel, this nation-state identity, and brought into the true Israel of Jesus Christ. And God, we, we know you have commanded us as your people to go out and to preach this gospel to them and to Gentile alike. So God, by your grace and your spirit, send us out. And God, may we see many in ethnic Israel come to faith in the knowledge of the true Israel, Jesus Christ. 
But God, may it not stop there. Lord, may our own families and friends, our own social circles, those whom we associate with, those whom we know and love, who don't know you, who maybe even openly mock you and blaspheme you. God, by your spirit, grant us the grace and the courage to preach your gospel to them, to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to them. so that we might see some in our own household come to faith in Jesus Christ. But above all things, Lord, may your name be praised and glorified. May your will be accomplished and perfected. May your people be sanctified and made holy as you are holy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Brother Sean. May we never assume God's grace. If you would please stand as we go before the Lord with one final song of worship, which is how great is our God. Which truly is great. You know, just like Sean was saying, he could have given us that stare of judgment. By his, by his grace, he showed grace.
our God, and all will sing how great, how great is our God. Holy and mighty Father, Lord God, you are great. Lord, you are holy. Lord, your name is holy. Lord God, we pray that you would return quickly. Lord, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord God, we thank you for your provision for our families. Lord, we thank you for the work you do in your spirit. That we'd be drawn close to you, Lord God. Lord, that you would sanctify us daily. Lord, give us the confidence in your church, Lord, to lean on one another in this room. Lord, we are called to love one another. Lord, let us feel that we can do this. Lord, we thank you for grafting us into this olive tree. Lord, we know in the land of Israel, the 